to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today with me, I have a guest who I've met now, spent some time with at multiple academic society. So I'm really excited to have him on today, especially for the topic that we have. So I've got Dr. Blaine Charette. Uh, Blaine, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here, Aaron. For my listeners, Blaine, he is uh, a professor of Bible and Greek at Northwest University. He is the author of two books and several academic articles, specifically on the New Testament. Um, and most recently, he is the author of Restoring Presence in the Spirit in Matthew's Gospel. Now, that's your academic kind of thing, but if you wouldn't mind uh, letting our listeners know a little bit about you, that'd be great too. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I've I've been I'm getting near the end of a pretty long academic career. Uh, about a year or two ago, I was made a distinguished professor of biblical studies at Northwest. Oh, uh, I've been involved, as you mentioned before, I've been involved in a number of societies. I, I'm a, a former, you know, president of uh, Society for Pentecostal mm -hmm. Studies. I've also been very involved in the Society of Biblical Literature. In fact, I've for about the last 16, 17 years, I've served as the sort of the liaison between those two societies. So uh, in that capacity, I basically put together a at least a biblical studies program under the auspices of SBS at the annual Society mm -hmm. of Biblical Literature meeting. Yeah. So um, and I just uh yeah, so my main my doctoral work was in Matthew, and uh, so primarily I teach in the area of New Testament narrative. So I regularly teach courses on the Gospels, Book of Acts, that type of thing. But uh, the nature of my dissertation is I was interested in how Matthew was influenced by the Old Testament, how he reads the Old Testament, mm. how the Old Testament fits in with particular themes in Matthew. Yeah. And so I've always had this uh, interest in um, Old Testament as well. In fact, when I was thinking about a PhD, I could, couldn't quite make up my mind whether I wanted to work in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. So I sort of split the difference by working in Matthew, because Matthew kind of allows you to uh, work really in both Testaments, since he's... Yeah, it's 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 no accident that Matthew's at the very head of the New Testament canon, because... Um, it's this perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that was a way for me to keep um, keep my feet in both Testaments and always try to take more broader view of Scripture rather than becoming very specialized, very narrowly focused yeah. in of my research. And, and I have to say, you are the uh, third guest on the podcast now who... Uh, completed their phd at the university of sheffield okay yeah which which just goes to show there was a time period there at sheffield where some of the best people were coming out of um and you know my supervisor of course was at sheffield colleagues were at sheffield and i have amazing respect for each of you because you you definitely are great readers of the text 
uh, coming from that time period. That's right. I mean, it was a bit of a, a golden period, you could say, in the late 80s into the 90s at Sheffield. You know, it's kind of leading the world in terms of literary approaches, which fit my interests well. I didn't really want to do kind of a hardcore historical grammatical kind of approach to Matthew. I wanted yeah. something that was more more attuned to his literary interests and how his theology relates to the way that he just structures things. And again, his reading of the Old Testament, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so for for today, and and we'll we'll get into that maybe near the end or kind of transition there, but I actually wanted to start with some of the conversations that I've heard from you over the years at SBS and other work that you've done, which is actually looking at the representation of Jesus or the gospel in uh, pop culture and things like movies and music, particularly because we are running up into a weird space, maybe, where we have things like God's not dead, uh, and two, one and two, is there three now? I mean, probably they still, you know, I think there's need a plan to, to do that. Yeah. You know, I always said that they made a huge mistake with God's not dead too, uh, by not naming it God's still not dead, which <laughs> it just still makes me a little mad. Like you had such a golden opportunity. Um, but then music, and then you've got this chosen movie out or show out now, and and it's we're we're seeing a preponderance of of representation of Jesus within quote unquote Christian pop culture, but then it's also in other places in pop culture as well. So to start that conversation, really want to ask you what made you interested in understanding or kind of studying how Jesus is represented in these spaces? Well, I'd have to back up quite a distance. You know, when I was in high school and we'll say from the time I was about, uh, 17 to maybe 21, I was actually thinking of becoming a filmmaker. Um, I had very much become impressed with, say, European films in high school. And I remember one time I spent about three months in London. And nice thing about London is just kind of non-official, but I spent three months in London. This would be when I was about 20. Uh, just basically, nice thing about London, pretty well, any movie you'd want to see is shown somewhere in London. Right? Right. And then you've got all these film libraries in London, and you've got all these film institutes and all these sort of special programs where they would focus on particular directors and things like that. So I basically spent that three months sort of just kind of informally kind of educating myself on film, okay? And as it happened, I never ended up pursuing that because I also thought around that same time, I felt I really probably should get a bit more grounded in my Christian faith. And that's hmm. part of the original reason why I started uh, started reading biblical studies and biblical literature. And then when I got more into that, I realized I just didn't I guess I didn't anticipate I would be as captured by biblical studies as I was so then yeah. I ended up following that path but I've always had an interest in that interface between popular culture particularly the arts and popular culture and theological questions because hmm. I feel that Part of my view of just my pneumatological perspective my view is kind of a, a Pentecostal 
Christian who gives a lot of attention to matters of the spirit is I really believe that the spirit, we sometimes think that the spirit only operates within the framework of the church. Right. Which is a very parochial understanding of the spirit, obviously. I really believe that the spirit isn't obviously limited. You know, so sometimes non-Christians, and, and it shouldn't surprise us, they're created in the image of God. They're, you know, Genesis 2, 7, God's breathed into them. So it shouldn't surprise me that, um, that oftentimes you'll find where non-Christians are sometimes even more sensitive, I believe. Yeah. To these ma- profound matters of reality, right? So questions of belief and questions of uh, morality and questions of uh, how should we live. I think sometimes you find much more mature explorations of those themes among non-Christians than sadly even among Christians, because it seems that in some respects, uh, Christianity has become so dumbed down at least in popular evangelical forms of Christianity, that there's almost little patience for these profound questions. So I remember just as a young person, rock music, for example, spoke to me much more profoundly when I was a teenager and somebody in my early 20s right. than, uh, than the kinds of songs we were singing in worship services at church. And it never, and it, and, it's, and it, I, I didn't kind of live a dichotomized life because I, I kind of recognized that uh, I appreciate what I'm getting at church. I appreciate the nurture I'm getting as far as guiding me in terms of my spiritual walk. But at the same time, I think because I've always been a more intellectual kind of person, I didn't see so much of that, at least in the churches that I was more associated with. Yeah. And so I would oftentimes have to look elsewhere for spiritual intellectual stimulation. And so I would find hmm. that in filmmakers, I would find that in songwriters that kind of thing. And so I've never really ever lost that appreciation for how God works, how the spirit of God works through non-believers. Yeah. The benefit of both the church, if the church wants to listen to that, or even to non-Christians, I think it's a witness that the spirit provides for himself. Yeah. Which, which already we can kind of say there's probably some people listening or or listeners know of people maybe even put it that way who would be really uncomfortable with the idea that there is a lot less of a secular sacred divide than we often imagine there to be right uh and maybe this is my way of saying it i guess uh and so clarify me if i'm wrong but this reality that where the spirit is working outside of traditional Christian spaces can come through within the arts or within movies or music and writing or whatever it is that can often surprise those from the church to kind of recognize, wait a second, that is something that I've, I've missed. I haven't been able to identify. I haven't been able to, to say, but you're speaking, you can see the spirit speaking through these alternate ways quote unquote outside of the church right yeah because sometimes the church isn't as discerning as it should be as it needs to be if it's really going to be an effective voice in the culture and you mentioned you know the god's not dead franchise for example you know i wrote a i wrote a critique of at least the first two movies um a few years ago i published that and um and basically the whole apologetic and the whole way of interfacing with secular culture 
I just see as highly problematic. Mm. It's almost, I would look at films like that as how not to do, <laughs> right. Things, right? Because right. it it ends up just reinforcing bad things within the church. And it's the kind of message that would never be, it would immediately be seen through by any intelligent non-Christian. Yeah. And it would leave them with a bad taste in their mouth as far as what the Christian faith really has to right. offer. So I kind of feel that those, I, I, I feel that oftentimes Christian, you know, now sometimes Christian movies can be good. Uh, you know, I just saw the that recent film, The Jesus Revolution, which is basically mm. about the, the Jesus movement in the late 60s, right. early 70s in Southern California. And it's actually, you know, I I felt overall it was actually quite a well done movie. So I think, and and hopefully that's kind of a a sign of kind of hope that maybe Christians are kind yeah. of waking up to how to how to make films that are entertaining and engaging, but also a bit more authentic and honest, right? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so typically I feel that the church is oftentimes very flat footed when it comes to cultural kinds of matters and uh and therefore kind of loses a very strong um opportunity to speak effectively to people who wouldn't come to church for example right yeah um you know i had some similar thoughts about the i don't even remember the name of it now but the one about the bakers um because it was just more authentic towards the struggle, towards the the draw yeah. towards the consumerism, the draw towards the 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 uh, wanting all of this. So, you know, in the theological biblical world, we might say the spirit of mammon in relation to the work of the church, right? Yeah. Uh, which was really, and I, it wasn't a Christian film, but again, it kind of kind of shows this weird struggle of this wanting to yeah. serve faithfully, but then being wrapped up in all of this other part of the world no, you're right um yeah so i i feel that you know i i feel that kind of i, I feel that the the spirit of god would want to speak through believers and want to speak through the church but when the church isn't handling that well hmm. the spirit still needs to speak right and so the spirit's going to speak through whomever makes himself available so for christians that would find that kind of uncomfortable I would just say, well, look at look at history, how oftentimes, you know, example I like to give is if you look at, say, Victorian England, for example, uh, the church isn't speaking against social problems, you know, children working in mines, you know, kind of the abuse of uh, of the poor, that kind of thing. You see a guy like Charles Dickens, who can be on the one hand, very critical of the church. Yeah. In fact, I almost went in another when I was young, I was also thinking of doing a PhD in maybe English, and I already had a dissertation topic as far as <laughs> on Charles Dickens and, and Dickens' critique of the of the Christianity. I think Dickens was somebody who was profoundly influenced by the gospel and who had a, a deep respect for the Christian faith. And that's what drove this kind of anger uh, and this criticism. Mm. Yeah. Of, church but he ends up becoming an advocate for social change and you could make the case that dickens uh dickens is and people like him 
are more responsible for these changes that we now take for granted that were important changes, but it wasn't so much a clergy that are leading that as far as people who are kind of holding the church to account, right? Yeah. I see a similar, you know, for example, we have an honors program here at Northwest University, and I was asked to, if I would teach a class next spring in the honors program. And so, of course, I came up with, which I thought would be an interesting way to kind of explore these kinds of issues, is I'm looking at the whole Vietnam era and how the conservative churches in America, and I'm including, say, the Assemblies of God, which is who I'm ordained right. with, and I teach in Assemblies of God school, but how the conservative churches are responding to Vietnam compared with how popular music of the day, particularly I'm thinking of, of rock music at the time, how they are uh, responding. And I'm, I'm taking basically a reception criticism approach where who best, and I, you know, I was a little kid at the time, this is all going, I lived in Canada, so it's not like the Vietnam War was something that was kind of central in my thinking, but I'm kind of aware of all of those things going on. And I also recognize that the church was very much kind of vilifying rock music at that time, right? Right. So, right. It's are seen as this kind of horrible thing. And these rock musicians are just seen as essentially bad people, keep your children away from them type of a thing. And yet, now that we have this vantage point of like, you know, 50 odd years later, we can ask the question, who, who is best representing a Christian perspective on this war? Yeah. Was it the churches who basically buy into American nationalistic goals? Or is it some of these protest musicians of the late 60s, early 70s, who, and one thing I'm so impressed by is how oftentimes you'll find biblical imagery and biblical language in their lyrics. Yeah. Right? So here, here are people who are not identifying as Christians and yet are certainly immersed in a Christian culture. And in a sense are saying, if the, why are the churches not doing more to speak to, to these truths and to speak to these falsehoods? And uh, and I just find that fascinating that oftentimes the church can be asleep in the moment, uh, but oftentimes, again, the spirit is not going to not have some voice. And sometimes just was Balaam's ass, the, the spirit will sometimes yeah. speak through voices that we would least expect the spirit to speak through, right? Well, and and you can very much correct me what I'm about to say, <laughs> but, you know, I think about that Luke 19 passage, right? The, I tell you, if they keep quiet, these stones will cry out. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and I think oftentimes as people in the church that we hear this passage and we, we really dichotomize it. What Jesus is really talking about, if there is no one left at all to yeah. say, to, to, to describe the reality of God within the world, to worship God, then, then creation itself would do it. Right. And we yeah. dichotomize it to go, well, that's never going to happen because, you know, I'm here, you're here. I mean, we have people here. But often I read that in light of kind of our conversation here and think to myself, no, no, no. What it's really saying is there are plenty of spaces in which the church is not crying out. That's right. And there are already places that the quote unquote rocks are crying out. Yeah, that's uh, right. 
and and we've got to recognize where the spirit is crying out through others through other spaces and recognize where we have failed to do so that's right but it's much harder for people to want to do that right because it's not as clean cut like ah oh, this is just about worshiping god and you know there's someone that, there's someone out there doing it we're okay yeah and 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 again going back to just my my Pentecostal tradition is I really think the church needs to be a prophetic community. Right. So if the church isn't being a prophetic community, if it's not speaking, if it doesn't have that discernment to understand the present and to speak into the present, uh, it's not really functioning as the church. It's basically asleep in Babylon. Right. And, and right. far too often that's what happens. The church simply is asleep in Babylon and and buying into the agenda of Babylon. And, and again, when I speak of the church, I don't want to sound negatively, because obviously there's always voices within the church, right, that are, are, yeah. are doing the prophetic thing. But, uh, but frequently, I think, the, I think there's a justifiable critique at times. And I think oftentimes the uh, criticism directed against the church by non-Christians is oftentimes uh, a, a, a simply a compliment in another form. We mm. expect more from you. Why aren't you guys speaking more to these issues? Why are right. you, why do you become sidetracked with these side issues that are just simply a distraction from the important things you should be talking about, right? Yeah. And and then by default, again, these other voices become the yeah, the default voices for addressing those concerns. Yeah. You know, kind of thinking about music again in pop culture, right? You've you've got this time period that you talked about specifically with the Vietnam War, 60s and 70s, you know, I think about my own, my own kind of formative generation music. And, and, you know, there's that kind of weird oddity, how much music forms you in your teens and 20s. Yeah. And then I'm in that stage of life where I listen to NPR and, <laughs> and like, wait, wait, don't tell me. And like, I, I don't know why, but that's just what I gravitate towards when I'm finding a podcast, right? Like, but but you know, I think about my own music of the the late '90s, mid 2000s that was formative to me. And going back to that, some some of that music, the post hardcore screamo kind of thing, and and listening to the lyrics again later on, and going, there was a lot of questions. There was a lot of frustration. Uh, a lot of ways in which these people are trying to talk about religious realities where they are not being heard or not being, you know, taken seriously. And you want, and we wonder why that group of people, largely so many of them coming from the church have found their way out and you can hear it through their music going, here are these questions, here are these problems, here are these issues. And we're not getting real answers or conversations about them. Well, that's right. I mean, and the church has never really known what to do very well with artists within their own midst, right? Because we, mm. we want artists to conform. We want them to make nice Christian films or we want them to right. write nice Christian worship things. Right. You know, think of think of Bono and U2's experience, the the yeah. community, the charismatic community they were involved in in Dublin. Basically they were given kind of an either or, you know, either conform to our understanding of what kind of music you should be writing or go do something. And to their credit, they recognized that they had a higher calling, right? 
And mm. consequently, somebody like Bono's had a significant influence, uh, probably a greater influence than probably any other Christian songwriter alive today, right? Mm. Because he he refused to allow his art to be limited by the constraints that the church wanted to place upon right. him. But that's, uh, that's a problem that art, and I don't consider myself an artist, but I consider myself an advocate for artists, right? Because I really feel that we, you know, Hollywood and, and the music industry is full of disillusioned Christians. You have people who grew up in the church, but felt that, again, they felt they were given this either or. You either have to conform to a certain way that art needs to be done so that we as Christians can feel unthreatened and comfortable yeah. with it or sorry we we can't support you anymore and then yeah. sadly so oftentimes especially because it's happening when somebody's at that vulnerable time in their life their their late teens early 20s oftentimes these people just drift away from faith so i would like to see christians be more nurturing of those you know people with an artistic bent sometimes they are difficult right I mean, you know <laughs> because they've got their own thing they want to do and they don't see things the way that other people see them and so oftentimes they they elicit from others a certain kind of fear and suspicion but i think part of again part of discernment is just working with these people nurturing these people supporting these yeah and giving them guidance so that they can truly use their giftings in a way that will um will fulfill God's calling in their lives, right? Thinking about Bono, and I'm I'm actually listening through his book now. Um which is, book, yeah. Yeah, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about experiences or I see things on social media. And again, we talk about kind of Christ and pop culture, right? You know, I think about his not too long ago interview with Stephen Colbert, where he talks about his faith yet again, which has been very publicly demonstrated and talked about. But to your point, or maybe an add-on to your point, it's interesting to see how much the church will, how many in the church will celebrate someone like Bono being on the late show, talking about their faith and saying, yeah, 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 way to go, Bono, for you know, talking about your faith, but then miss the music that has actually come out of his faith to discuss yeah. some of the issues even surrounding his faith or the problem, because we don't want that part. We just want the fact that you were on TV saying, go Jesus. Yeah. And yet when you do critique the church or you have struggles within the church or want to call out something to a better reality, well, you can just be relegated to your music over here, right? That's right. Yeah, we like that validation of when a Christian gets on, you know, Stephen Colbert or something like that. We kind of like that validation, but oftentimes at the same time, those same people, if they really, again, did a deep dive into U2's songbook, they'd probably, again, be puzzled, be a little bit dismayed. Yeah. Because again, there's this honesty to Bono that I think sometimes grates on, you know, right. a certain type of Christian, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, We've we talked about those, you know, I guess I'll ask about one more thing. And then I just want to hear from you in terms of pop culture, other areas that are interesting you to talk about Jesus and pop culture, but you know, the, the chosen, you know, mm. I've actually very intentionally not watched the chosen. 
I think I've seen maybe 20 minutes of the first episode or something, uh, which I thought was fascinating. I thought it was well done. I thought, um, you know, my, my knowledge of the text, it, there was nothing grading like in very many other, uh, very Jesus biopic attempts. Uh, you know, it was, it was all, all rather well done, but I've, intentionally not watched it because I don't want to get to a point where I see things or I struggle with things and I go, the the research isn't there. This is just kind of, you know, this or blatantly wrong or many of the things that we've dealt with, with much of our Jesus. And again, we're talking about Christian Christian art versus art at large at this point. Right. Yeah. So I've intentionally not because I don't ever, I have too many people that ask me, what do you think about this? And I don't want to ruin their, you know, thing if i go ooh actually i oh i really can't stand this or this or this like i just yeah. so i just don't watch it and that's fine with me but now i'm saying have you and what have you thought what do you think especially as someone who studies these kind of representations yeah you know a uh, a a course that i've taught several times in the past is uh the way jesus is presented particularly in 20th century cinema so basically the course starts with some of these, you know, some of the very earliest filmic things were passion plays, basically yeah. the filming of the, the passion. And, and then, you know, the first feature length movie actually was a Jesus movie, right? So, so Jesus has always been a topic and theme in cinema. So basically what I do is kind of just trace the history of these Jesus films. But the interesting the thing that comes through is how, uh, oftentimes the Jesus of these films simply reflects the attitudes of the day, right? So they, huh. they tell you more about the people making the film and the context in which they're made, whether it's the 1920s or the 1950s or the 1980s or whatever it might be. They're more of a reflection of how Jesus is perceived at that time. Hmm. Okay. And and, you know, I haven't, you know, again, I haven't watched The Chosen because, I mean, students are asking me all the time what I think about it. And again, I just say, you know, I'm such a tough customer when it comes to Jesus movies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just sort of, I, I just sort of, I, I said, I'm so, because I've taught, because I've looked at all these Jesus movies, I still feel a certain kind of traumatized. I'm still traumatized. I tell them I'm kind of still traumatized from the last Jesus movie I watched. So <laughs> I have to kind of wait a while. Yeah, I don't want to sound overly critical. because, And I realize, and I'm like you, I don't want to pop anyone's balloon. So my thing is, if you find this spiritually nourishing, you know, fine, right? I probably wouldn't, but part of it is because I am a gospel scholar, I really feel that the gospels, even though I love cinema, I almost feel that the gospels need to be read, they need to be understood in a literary kind of way. Mm. So even So I can't even imagine, even when I try to imagine, because I thought of this in the past, if I was going to make a Jesus movie, what would it look like? And I just realize the conclusion I come to is don't make a Jesus movie because it's <laughs> right. the text. Because as somebody who studies text, because that's my primary thing, I really believe that there's no way you can, there, there's no way you cannot be superficial if you're trying to do a film version of Jesus in the Gospels. It has to be 
rooted in the text. It's for the simple reason that there are certain things that you can only do with text that you can't do with film. Right. There, there, by the same token, there are certain things you can only do by film that are going to surpass what the written word would do. But when it comes to community, simply because there's so much intertextuality in the Gospels, as I mentioned before, they're constantly alluding to Old Testament passages. There's, there's this constant dialogue going on in the Gospels with, uh, with the Old Testament and with other, with other texts. And um, you can't capture that in a film thing. You can't do justice to the gospel. So the, 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 the gospels are going to be flattened out. You're, you're, by making it, anytime you take the gospel and try to turn it into a film version, you're taking something three-dimensional and making it at best two-dimensional. Yeah. It's losing so much that at the end of the day, is it even worth the attempt? I would yeah. rather all those energies were, and this is, where I come in as a New Testament scholar, I would rather all those energies be devoted to helping people read the text of the Gospels better. Because that's where so oftentimes people are lacking. They simply don't have the proper skills to read, uh, well, the Bible, but to read the Gospels in particular in a very yeah. way that is going to revolutionize their life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've said on this podcast before, you know, the Bible really felt dead to me as a 22 year old with a degree and in it and growing up a pastor's kid only because I thought I knew it. As soon as I stopped thinking that I knew it and started exploring it and in, in some of the intertextuality, you know, especially, especially Luke. I mean, I, I like so much of Luke's intertextuality and the way that he kind of interplays it. Um, all of a sudden it became really alive and meaningful and in ways that I had never thought it could be because it was no longer just, here's a story about how you should live your life, but rather it's a much larger world of what's happening and why it matters. Um, you know, all over acts too, where Luke is pulling this back. Yeah. Um, so maybe let's talk about that intertextuality, right? So, cause I agree with you, right. In some sense we can, we can almost say, the old cliche, the book is better, right? Yeah. So when you talk about the movie yeah. or the show, like it doesn't mean that, that that there's not something still for that movie or the show, but yeah. the book has something else to it that we miss. So what are some of those like intertextualities that maybe kind of lit up your world when you are saying, I want to study this and write about it and help other yeah. people see it? Well, you know, it, it, so as I mentioned before, when I was young, I was very, so I've been a Christian almost my entire life, right? And I, and I had this sort of deep commitment to God growing up. But I always felt drawn to, again, music, films, that kind of thing, because at that stage of my life, the Bible didn't have any aesthetic property to it, right? Hmm. And so when I first when I first decided to go to a Christian college, so after I'd sort of traveled a bit and done sort of this film study and things like that, I I felt God saying, go to a Christian college. And it was when I was at this Christian college that I was first introduced to biblical studies. And I think what struck me is that all of these things that I was interested in uh, were met in that uh, uh, that kind of more of a profound study of scripture because it's like one thing that troubles me all the time about translations english translations 
of uh, well, this is true of the Old Testament, but I'm more attuned to how this happens in the New Testament is just how prosaic, how, how poetic sections. I'm working on a sermon right now in Romans and working at the Greek text and looking at all the English translations and kind of surprised at how prosaic they make Paul sound when yeah. Paul's so much more poetic. Hmm. And I think that oftentimes that that poetic aspect of the Bible, because again, God is this, if you think of truth, beauty, and goodness, you know, oftentimes what we focus on is just the truth. We go to the Bible for truth, right. or we go to the Bible for, you know, how should we live, right? For goodness. We don't think of the Bible in terms of beauty. We don't think of the Bible in terms of this aesthetic dimension. And part, probably part of the reason why once I started studying the Bible on this more, and keep in mind, I was the kind of, I thought I I knew the Bible really, like you just mentioned, I grew up in the church. I was always the, I was always the the kid in Sunday school who knew all the answers to questions. <laughs> right. Right? And yet it wasn't until I started studying the Bible in this more serious way that I realized how little I knew about the Bible. Yeah. Kind of shocking to me because I thought, gee, I was a pretty, I thought I was a pretty informed Christian. And then now I realized how much I didn't know. Right. Yeah. And 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 so the reason why. I, so at first I started studying the Bible mainly because I just felt that I needed to own my faith a little bit better and have a more mature understanding of my faith, especially if I was going to interface more with kind of a, a secular environment. Uh, but then the more I got into it, the more I realized there's an artistry to scripture that is just as satisfying as anything else. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, and that's part of the reason why, again, you, you talk about Sheffield, part of the reason why I was attracted to Sheffield is I wanted to study the Bible, but again, not in a prosaic kind of way. Right. Um, but in a way that was really took the Bible seriously in terms of not just its truth, not just in terms of its goodness, but also in terms of its beauty, right? Yeah. And and Sheffield create at least at that time, Sheffield was that a perfect environment for that kind of approach to the Bible. Maybe give an example that Pauline Romans passage because I think a lot of people, if they are familiar with Paul, yeah, or the Bible, well, you know, Romans so definitely feels very. Yeah. So like, for example, when Romans eight, when he talks, so typically how it, it it's like, so all nature is longing for, it's in that passage where Paul's looking towards that future apocalypse, that future revelation of the sons of God. Okay. When we will be transformed and how all creation now is, is kind of longing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and waiting for that, waiting for this revelation of the sons of God. But what's interesting is the way most English translations take this is nature. They take nature as the subject and longing as the verb, right? So that nature is longing. But what's interesting is in the Greek text, the longing is the subject. It's the longing of nature. But the long, it's it. So it's this longing that is awaiting this apocalyptic moment. And, and it hmm. makes much difference to me that longing is the subject because what Paul is saying, and he, he starts off by saying, you know, our, again, it's translated, our sufferings in the present don't bear comparison with what will be revealed in the future, right? But even the term he uses there for sufferings, 
it could be the only other time he uses that in Romans. It has more to do with what our passions, right? So I see this passage. It's all about this. So even this longing, it's sort of like where I see Paul as kind of this poet here is he kind of defines this present age and that futility to which all creation was subjected as defined by a longing. And even as Christians, we are caught up in the midst of that longing. You know, what C.S. Yeah. Lewis, you know, you know, this was so central to C.S. Lewis's thinking as well. And part of the reason why I like Lewis, he's, you know, he's very much a poet, right? Uh, and Lewis, um, he used so often that, that this German term Zainzut, which could be translated longing. And that's part of what, if you know, think of his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he's basically translating that German term Zainzut by joy there. But he's thinking in terms of this longing. And that's what led him ultimately to faith, was he realized this, he's just, there's something drawing him. There's a longing there. But but anyways, back to the ascetic thing in Romans 8, I just sort of feel like just by making that translation more prosaic, nature is longing rather than longing being the main idea that Paul's talking about. Because I think what Paul very clearly is wanting to say, longing is what defines this present age that is subject huh. to this futility. Yeah. And that... And, and even Christians, we, because Lewis himself would also say that even when you become a Christian, you found, you found the goal of your longing in God, but, but to the extent that we're still caught up in this present age, we're still, because we still participate in that futility of the present mm. age, even yeah. as redeemed people, and longing, and I don't know, I just, it's something I hadn't seen before until I was really kind of looking at just carefully looking at the grammar of what Paul's uh, doing there. I just thought, you know, this is so beautiful how Paul writes this, that we're longing kind of defines the present. And of course that takes us back to art because what are great artists doing? They're expressing in different media that longing. So the best artists are attuned to that. They're attuned yeah. to that's at the very heart of reality in this present fallen age right and they're exploring that and and questioning that uh you know I, uh, some mutual friends of ours uh you know, Stephen Felix and Chris Green they're editing mm -hmm. a volume on um I think it's called the spirit and the song but it's kind of looking at theology and popular music and so they asked me if I'd contribute something. So I'm writing an essay right now on spiritual longing in the music of Jimi Hendrix. Oh, nice. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hendrix would be a good example of, again, one of these artists who I think is just very misunderstood. Because he's basically, if you think just the popular memory of Hendrix, he's basically seen as emblematic of kind of 60s success. He's seen as sort of that typical kind of artist who dies young, um, that kind of thing. And for Pentecostals, demon-possessed. Which I've heard. <laughs> well, yeah, and and right? and yet, what's interesting is he was exposed to Pentecostalism when you know he had these aunts who took him to Church of God in Christ here in the Seattle area when he was younger. He definitely, again, he's this artist that I don't think people knew what to do with him because he was definitely somebody kind of at a more genius kind of level, and um, and again, just as you look at, and again, it's not just his songs, not just his lyrics, but even if you just look at the way he uses his guitar, 
yeah it, it's this there's this longing that comes through like so he deals with things like alienation and loneliness and apartness so often in his lyrics but then even his own even the the sounds he's creating with his guitar capture that longing so well right yeah and and so I, I just find that fascinating. Again, we just talked about Romans 8, how I find that oftentimes artists find better ways of articulating that longing than sometimes, again, the, the, the church is able to do. Because I think the church has this, yeah, I don't want to sound critical of the church here. I identify myself as a Christian. Right, right. I've gone to church all my whole life and I'm involved in my own church and things like that. So when I use the term church, I've been, I'm talking more in terms of when the church is asleep. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and when the church is asleep, which again, sadly happens all too often is they're not asking the right questions and they're not speaking in ways that resonate with unbelievers. Again, I think an open thing we have is this sense of longing. So many people are searching, right? And the reason why people are drawn to popular music is popular music is honest about that longing. Whereas I look in vain for Hillsong songs or you know songs that you know the kind of the popular worship songs we sing today, because it's all we're supposed. What we're supposed to say as Christians is. I don't have any longing because I found Jesus, right? right? Right. I found Jesus. So I'm totally satisfied. Everything's hunky dory. I don't have any problems. Uh, there's not, there's a lack of honesty there, right? Yeah. And, and a lack and, of lament, right? Yeah. There's a lack of lament. There's, yeah. there's absolutely like no, you know, a, a few weeks ago I was preaching on, you know, blessed are those who mourn. And I was talking about that whole thing, how we just, one thing we, we tend not to do as Christians is, is, uh, encourage mourning or even uh, create context in which we can mourn because again yeah. lament becomes something that we become embarrassed by or almost ashamed of because after all if we are living in victory we shouldn't be mourning anything right but there's a lack of honesty with that right and and I think that we have to be so oftentimes I just find that uh, secular music ironically tends to be more honest yeah and christian worship music not traditional christian music but i'm thinking more contemporary christian yeah. music it, it's very much hollowed out and i just think there's much more honesty and that's certainly what resonated with me as a teenager and a young person was just that honesty that i yeah. saw which i wasn't seeing in the christian music that i was listening to and um and where's the spirit? Where where's the spirit going to gravitate towards? It's the spirit of truth, right? Yeah. You know, the, you know, so in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So where truth is, that's that's where the spirit of God is going to ally himself, right? Hmm. And so right. when whenever the church is inauthentic or not honest or in some kind of pretend mode, uh, the spirit can't work with that. We're not giving the spirit any resources with which to work with, right? Uh, and so the spirit is going to go where the spirit will find that kind of truthfulness. Yeah. And honesty. I I love that. And 
you know, a part of that part of me loves it too, uh, because actually I'm writing a chapter in that same book. Oh, okay, um, good. And and working and actually going to do it with a friend uh, who is a popular. Uh, he's a popular producer. He writes a lot of wordless music. Um, okay. And so we're actually doing doing a chapter on kind of the spirit and wordless music, mm-hmm. uh, which so much of our early conversations and the the crafting of that chapter and, and what what we feel both from his experiences as the producer, but also just kind of what comes from it is that longing. Uh, so it's really fascinating that you're you're kind of hitting there. Well, try to make sure I don't steal anything from our conversation today. For that, <laughs> right, that's your chapter, but it, it is it is really interesting because for us that that conversation is is in this engagement of wordless music, right? Well, this, think of Romans eight, where the spirit this, this, these right groanings that are kind of beyond language, right? exactly. Um, yeah, which which is going to be a key text for us to engage too, yeah, just in the sense yeah. of talking about it in a different way. Like what is that groaning too deep for words? Yeah. And how is that expressed within different areas of music and listening and engagement that we don't have to have the 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 verbal language to be able to process. But the spirit can reach out or deep can reach to deep or whatever we want to use in our Christianese language to recognize that something I, yeah, I'm pretty excited about the text. I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, yeah. I think it's going to be a great one for us. Yeah. So, well, Blaine, I appreciate uh, you taking the time. It's always fascinating subject, always much more fascinating because it is your work and I really enjoy uh, whenever I get to to engage more with your work in this area. For my listeners, how can they engage with that work more uh, frequently? Uh, what work is that? Of, exactly. of whether it's intertextuality or Jesus and pop culture, our conversations from the day. Um, well, I would just encourage listeners to Again, come out of, uh, there's always a tendency to kind of ghettoize ourselves as Christians, where we're only watching Christian programming, only listening to Christian radio, only reading Christian books, only ever interacting with Christians. Uh, That can really close, that, that can impair you in terms of your evangelism. So I would just encourage people to just kind of break outside of these boxes they maybe have put themselves in, read more widely, listen more widely, view more widely, right? I think that's the best thing to do. And again, use discernment and and be guided by uh, Christians who are writing in those areas of saying, you know, how to, you know, how to discern through using the arts and those kinds of things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I love it. Blaine, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate yeah. Well, you thanks, Aaron. Appreciate the opportunity this. to talk with you. Uh, hopefully we'll have you in a future season and we'll get some more updates on some more pop culture references of Jesus. Well, then sometime we could also talk about, I, I do a lot of stuff in biblical studies too, right? So, <laughs> yes, uh, we will get yeah, there too. Most of my time is just working in uh, in the biblical text, but, but, but I appreciate the opportunity because usually I talk more about that. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my interests in pop culture. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll definitely have you back then for some of your work here that you're doing in biblical studies. Oh, okay. okay, great. Good talk to you.